Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all our brothers and sisters who have joined us in church this morning for worship of our triune God. We also extend a special welcome to all the visitors who have joined us in this morning in church and to those who have joined us via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged through the preaching of the gospel and may God be glorified through our worship. The consistory has the following announcements. The consistory with deacons will meet the Lord willing tomorrow evening at 8pm in the consistory room. Sister Julia Rupka has arrived with attestation from the Free Reformed Church of Mundajong and we welcome her into our congregation. This morning's service will be led by Reverend Paul, minister from our sister church in Mundajong. Before we begin, let us sing together from Psalm 75 verse 1. Let us rise to worship the Lord. <clears throat> we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord's greeting in the words of Psalm 75, stanzas 1 and 4.
Speak now the reassuring word that you are my salvation, Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And as he delivered his people from Egypt in the past, he delivers his people from sin and Satan today. And he calls us to live for him. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your livestock, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. As we reflect on our life in light of God's law, we also see that we need ongoing forgiveness and ongoing renewal. And God gives that to us through Jesus Christ. At the cross, righteousness and peace kissed each other. And through the cross, we have redemption from our sins. Let's sing about that in the words of Psalm 85, stanzas 1 and 2.
As some of you may have heard, this um, past Friday, Friday, Sister Hiram Sr. went to be with the Lord. So we'll pray for um, the extended family and give thanks to the Lord that he took her home. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we come before you this morning, gathered here as your people. We acknowledge that you are the maker of all things. You made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them. You created the most far-flung galaxies. You created our solar system. You made this world and made it beautiful. You made all things beautiful in their time. From the greatest mountain to the smallest single-celled organism, you made all that lives. And this thought fills us with exhilaration. When we look around us and we see this world and all of its beauty, we acknowledge that this is our Father's world. And if you made this world, then nothing is too difficult for you. What is greatest of all to us is that you are our God, that you are our salvation, as we sang. And we need salvation, for we have brought sin into this world, and we are burdened by what we have created So often our motivations are corrupted, our thoughts twisted. We are influenced by sin in ways that we don't fully understand ourselves, this evil and malevolent force that lies hidden within us. And we can never say that we are victims of our own sin, for we ourselves are the ones who do these deeds and who carry them out. We are sinners and we have sinned against this pa- again this past week. Therefore, we pray for your salvation. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your renewal. We pray that having set us free from the dominion and slavery of sin, you would also deliver us from the flesh and body of sin, that we could be renewed day after day, become more and more spiritually sensitive. And we pray that you would be faithful in remembering your covenant promises that you made to us. As you were faithful to your people in the past, be faithful to us today, we pray. We give thanks that you are always with us in all of our difficulties. We often do have difficulties, and this morning we remember especially our our elderly brothers and sisters, those who are burdened by ongoing health problems, those who also are feeling their, their body decline and degenerate and their strength ebbing away and who know that it will never be restored again on this side of the grave. We pray for those under the care of doctors, especially for those who suffer from long-term health problems. We pray that you would give them encouragement and healing. And where this is not the case, we pray that you would help us to accept things that we do not always understand. We give thanks for the promises of the gospel, 
the gospel that tells us that whoever believes in you will never be turned away. And it is also in that, that awareness of your gospel promises that we can pray for Des and Sharon Hirama and Craig and Rose Vandenberg as their mom passed away on Friday morning. We give thanks that you relieved her from her illness, that you do keep your promises to your children, that we can know in faith that all those who profess hope and faith in you will never be turned away. And therefore, when we die in hope of the resurrection, that we also can be fully assured that we are welcomed into your presence. We give thanks for the long life that she could live and for her service to you. We also pray for Brother John Bonker and Sister Maria Huizinga, who are also related to her. We pray that you would be with all family members and continue to strengthen and encourage them in the hope of the gospel. We pray for all those who mourn the loss of loved ones more recently and also in the more distant past. Grant that the gospel that we hear this morning again would encourage us, open our, our ears, enable us to respond to your word with wholehearted devotion. Give us ears to hear that it would be the gospel of salvation and renewal to us. We pray, Lord, that you would answer our prayer, not because we deserve it, but in Jesus' name alone. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to read the first ten verses of this letter of Paul to the Galatians. The letter of Paul to the Galatians. If your Bible looks like mine, it's on page 1154. And we're going to read the verses 1 through 10. Our text this morning will be the verses 6 through 10, but we'll read starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So far, 
Let's respond to the reading of God's word by singing Psalm 78, stanzas 17 and 21. So our text this morning is the verses 6 through 10 of the passage that we read. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and to follow along as we'll be going through it word by word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, back in 2021, you may remember that you had to fill, fill out a census. And the census also contained 
questions regarding religion. So recently the Australian Bureau of Statistics released the results of that census and the results were rather striking. It said that about 40% about of the people who responded said that they had no religion. It's apparent that we live in a time when a lot of people don't understand what faith is actually about. But even among those who profess to be Christian, there are many who do not understand what happens in a church. What is church about? They don't know really what a church is. What is the church? If I were to ask you what the church is, what would your definition be? Well, the church is the people of God. The church is composed of people that have been called by his word, cleansed by his word, and renewed by his word. So the word is central. God called the world into being by his word. He called the church into being by his word. And so his word, the preaching of the gospel, is central to the worship service. It is central to what it means to go to church. That's also why the gospel, the preaching of the word, is the one area where Satan loves to attack a church and loves to destroy it. He did that to the Galatians as well. He tried. Paul wrote to them and he tells them, You've got the true gospel. Do not let go of it. That message is still relevant to us today, which is why we're going to take this admonition to heart this morning. The admonition is that we are not to let go of the true gospel. Why? Because to desert the true gospel is to desert the grace of God. To preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. So that will be our, our theme, our, our focal point this morning as we, as we work our way through this text. Do not let go of the true gospel. Now you may not have noticed this the first time when we read through this passage together, but there is something actually that is quite abnormal about this text that we're looking at. Compared to all of Paul's other letters, how does, how does he normally um, write in his letters? He follows the, the conventions of Greco-Roman letter writing, which means that you would open with a greeting and so on, a salutation, a, um, you would uh, connect it to God somehow, and then, and then you would have some pleasantries. But he skips that, that, that last bit here. He has no thanksgiving like he did in Philippians 1. He says he gives them no pleasantries at the beginning. He takes them to task. He severely rebukes them. When you, when you read this letter, it's almost as if it's about to spontaneously combust by the, because of the pent-up energy of his frustration. That just comes through these words. He's astonished. He is absolutely astounded that they are turning away from the God who called them. But in the midst of this rebuke that he gives them, it's, it's easy to, to miss something important. In the rebuke itself is, is a reminder of God's grace. And really all all good rebukes should do that, shouldn't they? They should all, always be grounded in grace. 
grounded in God's grace. Grace always comes first. And they had experienced that grace, these Galatians. Grace shows through in the phrase, him who called you in the grace of Christ. Because think about who these people were, these Galatians. These are first generation believers. They were heathens before the the gospel came to them. And God called them out of the ignorance of their of their beliefs in the past and the the immoral and sinful practices that that came with that, and he made them part of his people. He called them in the grace of Christ. That was his initiative. It was his idea. They were called, and that word is passive, isn't it? It is something that happens to you to be called. You think about that. This gracious call originated in God. He called them through the gospel, just like he did for you. Just like he did for you. He called you too. Consider his undeserved grace. Consider his kindness and his compassion that he showed to you, even this very morning, by, by placing you in a position where you could be here this morning and be reminded of the beauty of the gospel again and of his call. He calls you in the grace of Christ. Consider his kindness and his compassion and his undeserved love to you. He called, and he called them in the grace of Christ. And that reminds us of what could have been. He could have left them. He could have left you. He could have left you in ignorance of sin. He could have judged you forever and ever in your sins. And he didn't do that. But instead, he accepted Christ in our stead. He carried out judgment on him. So it is possible for us to be right with God. It is possible for us to have forgiveness of sins. It is possible for us to be renewed. It is possible for us to have victory in our fight against sin, Satan, the world. It's possible to have all of these things through Jesus Christ. And you see how central Jesus is here. There's no other way to come to the Father except through the Son. So Christ must always be central. And that means that the gospel is always about grace. You never receive this grace by works. It can always only respond with unconditional faith. That's why you are never able to mix grace and works. It's like trying to mix oil and water. Cliche, but true. You can never say that you accept God's grace and then expect that your own actions will make you even more acceptable in God's eyes or or continue to maintain you in being acceptable in God's eyes. This is one area where even experienced Christians sometimes fail. We believe that we're saved by grace. That's been drummed into us as a point of doctrine. But then we we feel like we need to continue to, to behave well because if we don't, we're going to lose God's grace. But grace by its very nature excludes all works If it included works, even a a little bit, then it would stop being grace. Because grace is God's undeserved favor. Paul makes this point very clearly in Romans 11 verse 6. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So only God can give you that kind of grace.
The problem is that these people have turned away from that, that grace. And Paul uses very strong language here. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Those are strong words. To desert. You are so quickly deserting him. Desert. To desert. That's what a soldier does when he runs away from the battle. He's called on to fight for his country. He pledged that he would live and die for his country. And then when push comes to shove, when the bullets are flying, then he deserts. The Greek version of this word could also be used to, to describe a politician who betrays his country. And you do see that from time to time. Politicians who, who sell out their country on some level. The New King James Version translates this word betrayed as turn away, which is also a possible translation. It's a very serious charge to turn away. To turn away is like what the Israelites did in the desert. We sang about that in Psalm 78, to turn away from God's grace. Now, we might categorize this behavior as a misunderstanding, right? I mean, it would be, it would be fair to say, look, these are, are young believers. They're immature. But Paul doesn't see it that way at all. He highlights the seriousness of this. He says, you are deserting You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. But at the same time, it's still present tense. You are deserting. You are turning. I'm seeing you do this, but you're not gone yet. So there's there's grace in this warning as well that he points out their behavior. He says it's not too late. It's not too late to turn back. God doesn't leave his people without direction. He doesn't leave them without warning. He says, you can still turn now. Do not reject God's grace, even in that. Paul needed to be hard on these people because they didn't understand the scope of the problem that they had gotten themselves into. Remember what had happened. Paul had come to these people, to the Galatians, and he had preached to them the true gospel of God's grace. God's grace is free. It is given without prerequisite without qualification. After Paul left, other teachers came along, Jewish teachers, and they told the Galatians that they were missing a key piece of the puzzle. They said, look, if you want to become a Christian, you can. But you need to become Jewish first. Or at least you need to keep the main um, Jewish, shall we say, boundary markers, the main Jewish laws, circumcision, The feast days, don't touch pork, that kind of thing. In other words, you need to do something for it first. You need to improve yourself first. You heathen people, you're uncircumcised. You eat pork. You don't keep the Sabbath. You start doing all of those things first. You improve yourself first. You obey first. Then you'll be able to become a Christian. Think about the conversation Paul had with the jailer from Philippi. Remember that story? The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. These Jewish teachers would have said, get circumcised, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What we need to understand is that the gospel is God's masterpiece. The gospel is beautiful in its elegance, in its simplicity. 
There's nothing else like the gospel in the whole world. Every other religion says you need to do something. Or you need to keep on doing something in order to be right with God. The true gospel says that God calls you in the grace of Christ and then He does something for you and He does something in you. And that's God's masterpiece. That is the gospel. It is so simple that a three-year-old child can understand it. It is so profound that it takes her whole life to work out the implications. Sometimes people try to meddle with this masterpiece. And that is so foolish. It reminds us of a story that happened about ten years ago in Borja, a little town in northeastern Spain. There was a small Roman Catholic church there with a painting of Jesus, or at least what the Roman Catholic artist thought Jesus should look like. There was a painting on the wall dating to the 1930s in a style that, that we're familiar with if you've ever seen that type of iconography. Well, the painting was beginning to flake off the wall. And there was this 81-year-old church member, a lady, Cecilia Jimenez, who attempted to restore the painting by herself. And she'd like touched up little bits and pieces here and there over the years. The priest was okay with that. But this time she thought, you know what, I'm going to work on the face. And she was an amateur. So she completely botched it. She meant well. She meant to restore it to what she thought it was supposed to look like. But the resulting restoration was so bad that it became famous for being so bad. Since then, hundreds of thousands of tourists have come to this little town, this little village in, in Spain to see this painting and to buy souvenirs. And the really funny part was that this lady was completely unrepentant about what she'd done. She was rather pleased that she put her town on the, on the map. In an interview, she said, the restoration has put Borja on the world map, meaning I've done something for my village that no one else was able to do. It's kind of a funny story, but you, you need to have nerve to try to, to try to improve on a masterpiece like this. None of us would have the audacity to do that. So why do we do the same thing with the gospel of God's grace? Why do we say to ourselves, this doesn't look right? And then try to change it or restore it. You know what our real problem is? Our real problem is that we're ignorant. Here we are in a Reformed church. A Reformed church is the one place where you are most likely to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And that's not meant to, to praise ourselves. The point is that, that preaching has always been central to the Reformed faith. That's how the Reformed churches were born. That's the essence of being Reformed. God called us out of the muddle of Roman Catholic ignorance and superstition in the 16th century. This is why we exist. The gospel became central to our life as church and as Christians. But how many of us today really appreciate that for what it is? How many of us are still passionate about developing a clear knowledge of the gospel? Is it not true that we're often preoccupied with other things in our lives? We're like that man in the fable of the lead-painted lamp. The story is that there was a bazaar in some Middle Eastern country, and a man went to this bazaar. He bought, he bought a lamp that was made out of lead. Now, lead is not a very viable metal, as you know. So he didn't think much of this lamp. He just needed it. And... Um, 
He had it at home, and then one day he was cleaning this lamp and uh, polishing it, and he polished it a bit too hard, he scratched it, and it turns out that the lamp was gold, actually, underneath. It was a solid gold lamp, it had just been covered with lead. And, um, and so he was now the owner of a gold lamp. Suddenly his whole attitude to this lamp changed. He, treated it, he started treating it like something valuable. So what changed there? The, the lamp didn't change. The lamp has always been the same. But his perception of the lamp, his attitude towards the lamp changed. And that's how it is with us in the gospel as well. We don't need to change the gospel to suit our modern times. We don't need to update what we have. The gospel doesn't need to be updated. It doesn't need to be repackaged. It doesn't need to be made palatable for today's supposedly discerning and modern audience. If we don't like it, we're the ones that need to change. Or rather, we should pray that the Lord would change us, that he would change our attitude towards the gospel. The gospel is unique. There is no other gospel. Look at the last half of verse 6 and the first half of verse 7. He reflects that there. He says, you are turning to a different gospel. But when he says different gospel, he's not suggesting that there is such a thing. As if there are multiple Gospels that you can choose from. He says, you're turning to a different Gospel, not that there is another one. There is no other Gospel. All you'll find is people who distort the true Gospel, then repackage that. And they say that this is the Gospel, but what they end up having is not actually the Gospel. The the true Gospel is the only thing of its kind that exists, that has ever existed. It is unique in the history of God's revelation. Now, you might be listening and thinking in the back of your mind, is that really true? After all, we live in a postmodern age, don't we? That is to say, we we live in an age in which the very foundation of our reasoning as as Western people has been shaped by postmodern thinking. And if you know anything about postmodernism, and it's certainly not an easy thing to get a handle on, but one of the the central teachings of postmodernism is that all reality is created by language. All reality is created by language. So whether or not something is true from a postmodern perspective has less to do with what it is in its essence, and it has more to do with what people say about it. In other words, I can say that one thing is true, you can say that something different is true. And we can both be right. Even if it's contradictory, we can both be right. You can have your truth, I can have my truth. And as long as we respect each other's truths, then we don't have to agree. And a postmodern person is, is quite okay with that. They're quite okay with, having, with holding simultaneously contradictory truths in their mind at the same time. Now, don't think for a moment that that thinking only exists outside of the church and that we are the, the, the bulwark of clear thinking and logic, because we're not. You can find lots of postmodern influences among Christians as well. From that perspective, for people who think that way, it is, it is not a problem to have two Gospels living side by side. As long as you feel close to God, as long as you feel convinced that you're doing the right thing, then it must... It must be right, and it doesn't matter what you believe. But you don't get to do that. You do not get to put your own spin on reality, then assume that this is true, and then judge what Paul is saying on the basis of what you think it should be. That is not how these things work. 
This is the gospel of Christ. It is not yours to do with as you please. Paul had received a divine commission from God, and he, he explains that more in the passage that follows, which we didn't read. But it is clear that we, from our culture and our perspective, do not get to change the meaning of the gospel that he taught to suit our purposes. We, don't, we simply don't have the authority for that. You don't get to do that. If a message is authoritative to us, the authority for that message has to come from outside of us. By definition, else it stops being authoritative. It stops being authoritative and it becomes a question of preference. Do you understand? If it comes from within yourself, it can never be authoritative. Authority, by definition, always has to exist outside of you. So if the gospel has to be, if the gospel is authoritative in our lives, the ultimate interpretation cannot depend on what we think or feel. And that was the, the essence of Reformed exegesis, that the meaning lies in what the words themselves actually mean, that there are rules of, of grammar and of interpretation that you can apply to understand what it means, and that we can all do that together. So that it's not just one opinion versus another, but that we have it objectively outside of ourselves, and we can read the gospel, we can study it together. And then the beauty is that it enters us and it transforms us from the inside out. <clears throat> in the end anything other than the true gospel is powerless if you desert the true gospel you desert the grace of God these false teachers who claim to be Christians were leading people back to living under the Jewish law but the law was powerless powerless to save powerless to change people and one of the reasons why Paul is so worked up over this is because he experienced that personally. He knew before his conversion he was still a fanatic Pharisee. And he was fully convinced, he fully thought, he fully felt in his mind, in his heart, that he was right with God. You see, feelings are not always reliable. He was sure that he was right with God. But he wasn't. His whole life was built on a big illusion. The law had not been able to prevent him from sinning against God's people. The law had not been able to show him that what he was doing was wrong. He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus and then he received the gospel of grace himself and he was immediately righteous in the eyes of God in spite of all of his sins and there was nothing he needed to do to earn that. And now these Judaizers, these false teaching teachers are making his converts return to the very works that he left behind. They're trying to bind his converts to the legalism that, from which he was delivered. And that's why he is so, so, so he words it so strongly. He tells them, do not let go of the true gospel. Because if you let go of the true gospel, you are deserting the grace of God. And then he goes on to explain that to preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. Which was the other half that, that we were looking at in here. One of the interesting things about Western Christianity, globally speaking, is how much of it has been influenced by celebrity culture. Going to Kurong, you look in uh, the Christian book section, they have all sorts of people that put their faces on the covers of their books because they're famous and fame sells. Celebrity culture in the church. 
We live in a time when anyone who is a celebrity automatically seems to have authority to speak on all sorts of issues, even if he or she is completely unqualified. And this, this celebrity culture has infected Western Christianity. So what this means is that there are all sorts of people out there who are preaching and teaching nonsense, and people are giving them an audience. You can fill a stadium with tens of thousands of, of people that all listen to one guy up front that speaks nonsense. The people lap it up because the speakers are famous. In other words, they are looking to the source of the message. They're looking to who the message is coming from. They're not critically evaluating the message itself. Well, it's a problem today, but it was a problem for the Galatians as well. I can understand, you know, they, um, they were new believers, and here come these people who are, who are Jewish in background, and they have this uh, pedigree that is thousands of years old. It's like, wow, the, the rabbi is in town. You know, he's famous. We should listen to them, to him. And Paul takes him to task for that. He says in verse 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Well, that's quite something. Imagine if an angel appeared to you. Like, actually imagine if this happened to you. If an angel appeared to you. None of your friends or family want to believe you. But an angel appeared to you. And he taught you things that sounded biblical, but they weren't from the Bible. Would you listen? Well, this is exactly how Mormonism started, wasn't it? Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism. You might have had Mormons come knocking on your door. Well, Joseph Smith, their founder, claimed that, that an angel appeared to him starting in 1823 and directed him to the golden plates that Smith later used to write the Book of Mormon. Smith taught that everyone else had it wrong. Mormonism is the true faith. But Mormonism is a false gospel. It teaches all sorts of strange things. For example, that God the Father has a physical body. That Jesus and Satan are actually brothers. There are many, many other strange and bizarre teachings in Mormonism. But there's millions of people today that believe it and that spread these teachings. The fact is that the power and the truth of the gospel do not lie in the person preaching it. The power lies in the message itself. So your standard for listening should never be, is this person famous? But it should be, is what I am hearing the true gospel? And for the gospel to be true, it needs to be complete. Probably many of you at some point have listened to a preacher on the internet. You might think, well, what, what, what he's saying is not actually that different from what I hear in my church. And you know what? That, that may very well be. There are, there are some good resources out there. But it's also possible that you're wrong. Maybe the part that you're hearing in and of itself is not wrong. But if, it's only the, if that is the only part that you ever hear, then you haven't heard the true gospel. The true gospel is the gospel that is complete as it has come to us from the apostles and the prophets and as it is given to us in the Bible. That gospel is the power of God for salvation. That gospel never depends on the person who is bringing it. So you should not pay attention, more attention to one preacher over another just because the one happens to be famous and the other is not. For the same reason, we should not avoid going to a worship service just because it happens to be a reading service. It's quite tempting, isn't it, sometimes to think, well, we're having a reading service this afternoon. 
I'll just stay home and I'll listen to the live feed of a different church. But the power of the gospel does not depend on the person delivering it. The power of the gospel is inherent in the gospel itself. And sometimes the Holy Spirit makes that point in quite amazing ways. Some of you may have heard the name Jonathan Edwards before. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century American revivalist, preacher, and theologian. He was most famous for preaching a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And his delivery is, apparently was actually not that exciting. He was known to be a very solemn preacher. Didn't smile much. Bit of a monotone maybe. He, had, um, he, he used a manuscript and he read, actually, from his manuscript, so he's looking down half the time. Yet when he preached this particular sermon, he couldn't even finish it. The people in the church building were so overcome by a sense of their own sinfulness and God's justice and how they deserved eternal condemnation. They were crying out and people were holding on to the pillars of the church and, and weeping aloud. He couldn't even finish preaching. That's the power of the gospel, worked by the Holy Spirit. So you should not try, preachers should not try to preach a different gospel or try to put a spin on it. <clears throat> try to bring in a little bit of self-help, a little bit of secular psychology. That's not the gospel. You should not desire a different gospel even. To desert the true gospel is to desert the grace of God. To preach a different gospel is to invoke the curse of God. The apostle writes, if, ever, if anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He drives this point home by, by repeating it twice. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What does that word mean? Well... The word that is translated as accursed is used in the Greek Old Testament as well. It means to place someone under the ban. The Hebrew word for ban refers to devoting something to the Lord by destruction. You can find it in places like Exodus 22 verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. They shall be placed under the ban. It was a way of being set apart for God. It's quite fascinating that there are actually two ways to be set apart for God. One of them is by being holy. To be holy means to be set apart for God. That's what the word means. So you can be set apart for God by being holy, dedicated to his service, or you can be set apart for God by being devoted to destruction. That's what it means to be under the ban. The ultimate form of being accursed is to be eternally condemned by God. It means going to hell. That's what Paul is referring to here. He's saying if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned, no matter who he is. And we misuse that word just as a swear sometimes. It becomes a way of insulting someone else. Paul is not using it in that way here. He's not being offensive for the sake of being offensive. He's using that word with the full awareness of what it means. If someone preaches a gospel contrary to one, the one that you've received, damn him. 
And that's offensive. It's powerful language. You understand that this letter was was received with raised eyebrows. Why is he so unrelenting to these false teachers? Because of what happens if you get it wrong. Remember what these false teachers were teaching. They were saying the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law is still in effect. Think about the implications. If this is true, then we're still under the Mosaic covenant. If we're still under the Mosaic covenant, then we are still a part of this age. If we are still a part of this age, the age to come has not yet come. If the age to come is still coming, then Jesus was not the Messiah. If Jesus was not the Messiah, you are lost. You're still in your sin. Those are the logical consequences of following a false teacher. Those are the logical consequences of following anyone who attempts to add something to the gospel. Look, you can't have it both ways. The Catechism already told us that 500 years ago. One of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for salvation. It matters to get this right. It matters to get the gospel right. The gospel is inclusive in its scope. The gospel is for all people without distinction. It is generous and inclusive. There's no more inclusive thing in all this world than the gospel of the living God. People talk about being inclusive today, but they don't know. There's nothing more inclusive in all the earth than the gospel of the living God, but the gospel is absolutely exclusive in its claims. There's no room for half a gospel or a gospel assembled in a different order or a gospel that caters to our wishes in the moment, no matter how good it might make us feel. All of that is a false gospel. In the end, the true gospel is always going to offend our natural sensibilities because it asserts authority over us. It tells us that our self-perception is wrong. It tells us that we are sinners by nature. It calls us to turn to the living God on are on his terms, not on our own. And it says, if you, if you put it any other way, then you invoke the curse of God. Oh, that's never going to be a popular message with modern man. We find that thought reflected in verse, verse 10 as well, when, when Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to, to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ He's saying, I'm I'm not doing this to be popular. Did you think that this was about being popular, about trying to drum up more people to, to, to listen to me? I'm doing this to please God. And that's ultimately the the reason why we need to hold on to, to the true gospel. It honors God, it pleases Him. At the beginning of the sermon, we noted how the Australian Bureau of Statistics recently released a survey how 40% of those who responded said they had no religion. Did you know that 11 years ago, that number was at 22%? So we have seen a sharp increase in the people who say that they have no religion. And that's really sad, because we, as people who are part of Western culture, we are the heirs. We are the heirs of a 2,000-year-old gospel tradition, and until very recently, the West, in some form, had held on to that, and now they're throwing it all away. Our culture is deserting the gospel. It is deserting the grace of God. And when you desert the grace of God, what is left but judgment? 
That's why we need to continue coming to church, because here is where God carries out his work of grace. Think of the canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 14, just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel. So he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So God has given us the gospel. Hold on to it. He wants to maintain us in it. This is where that happens. So come to church. This is where you hear the gospel of God's grace over and over. This is where you hear the true gospel. This is where you are transformed. What could be better than that? Amen. Let's give thanks. Our gracious God, we give thanks that you have given us the true gospel. We give thanks that you have given us your word, that it is true and reliable, that we do not need to doubt 
We do not need to be insecure. We do not need to be afraid that we have the wrong gospel for what you told us was true. Help us, therefore, never to let go of it. For to desert the true gospel is to desert your grace. And if we desert your grace, what could be left for us but judgment? Help us, therefore, to be wise in the things that we read. Help us to be wise in the things that we listen to. Give us discernment to tell apart truth from error. Help us not to, to judge a message only by how it makes us feel, but help us to judge it by whether or not it is true and complete. We pray that you would be with your church here and abroad. We pray that the true gospel would be preached today from east to west, from north to south, from time zone to time zone. That voices would be raised in worship and in adoration in response to you, the great God who saves sinners. We pray that you would continue to grant, to, to call your people to faith, and we pray that all those who preach a different gospel would be silenced. Preserve your people from error. We pray that many more would be raised up as preachers, also in our midst, even from this very congregation, that you would lay the burden uh, in the hearts and minds of young men that they would desire to preach your gospel and to follow those studies. We pray that you would bless the work of office bearers in our midst, that you would bless the work of consistory as they meet again on Monday, give them wisdom and insight to deal with their circumstances and the situations that, that they encounter in, the, in this congregation. Grant that there would be a love for the flock. We pray that you would enable us to love the truth. And we look forward to the day when all of creation will rejoice at your coming. When all of creation will acknowledge you as the one true God. And we pray that all people on that day would welcome you as their rightful king. That, that you would fill this earth with the knowledge of your greatness and your name as the waters cover the earth. We look forward to that day and we pray that you would bring it soon. In Jesus' name alone. Amen. We now have an opportunity to give our gifts for the work of mission. And we do so also in the hope and prayer that the Lord would bless the preaching of the gospel all over this world. Let us... Um, also contribute towards that to the best of our ability and then sing from hymn 71 in closing.
Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.